The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Welcome to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. May is Asian and Pacific American Heritage Month, a month that honors and celebrates Asian American and Pacific Islander identity, also known as AAPI. While there are many events that recognize this special month, it is important to acknowledge that this time feels different. The wave of anti-Asian violence and racism that has negatively impacted the community is something that cannot be dismissed. Through this series called AAPI at Cornell, you will hear the stories of Cornell staff members in their authentic voice, celebrating their heritage and the joys of being Asian and Pacific Islander, while also naming the very real concerns that they experience in this moment. My name is Toral Patel. My name is Anthony Sis. And you are listening to AAPI at Cornell. Our series begins with part one of a two-part conversation with four amazing staff members, Perdita Das Humphrey, Jamie Hom, Aaron King, and Carolyn Chow. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Toral Patel, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Today, I'm very excited to welcome an amazing group of Cornell colleagues who will be sharing their stories as we celebrate AAPI Heritage Month. Let's start with some introductions. Carolyn, do you want to share your name, pronouns, your role at Cornell, and some of your salient identities? Sure. Hi, everybody. My name is Carolyn Chow. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I am the staff recruiter at the College of Veterinary Medicine. I'm also the inclusion program lead. My salient identities are that I am Chinese American. I identify as lesbian, married to a woman, and I have an invisible disability. Hi, everyone. My name is Perdita Das Humphrey. I use she, her, hers pronouns. I am the house assistant dean of Hans Beta House here on West Campus, overseeing a living learning community of uh, sophomores and up. I've been at Cornell about four and a half years now, and some of my salient identities are I am Bangladeshi American. I'm a first generation immigrant. I just am a naturalized U.S. citizen. I am a heterosexual cisgender female, identify as a woman, and I'm married to a uh, white American man. Hello, hello. Aaron King, pronouns he, him. I work on the West Campus House System as well, House Assistant Dean for William Keaton House. And uh, identities, many, many identities. I identify as Asian American, Korean American, transracial adoptee. I think my Growing up in the South, that's kind of an identity. First-gen college graduate um, in interracial marriage and with multiracial children as well. So all of those come into play. And yes, yeah, cisgender man identify. Perfect. Jamie. Yeah, hi. Um, my name is Jamie Hom. I um, my role at Cornell is I'm the assistant director in new student programs. Um, so that is our orientation in TACCON Center falls under that. And my selling identities, I would say, is I'm Asian American, Chinese American, specifically third generation, a woman, and a cisgender. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. So my first question to all of you is just as we celebrate AAPI Heritage Month, how has each of your heritages shaped the person that you are today? I would say like my heritage, I identify as Chinese American, but I grew up really, I would say it was interesting because like my like I grew up in a very like white 
predominantly white town. It's kind of the only Chinese, just Asian, Asian American representative in my school from K through 12, counting my brother and sister. There was like three of us, that's it. <laughs> so I, I would say I was pretty isolated. I did have my family in Brooklyn that we would visit like for holidays or weekends. But I would say like my heritage of really understanding my Asian American identity was pretty isolating and I didn't really fully grasp it, I feel, until I entered higher education and then started, you know, taking race, ethnicity classes and getting involved in our Asian American Association, where I started to kind of learn about that identity more and like the history of the API community in the United States. I can continue. Uh, my experience is honestly almost the complete opposite of it. So I grew up in Bangladesh for the first 20 years of my life. And I've been living in the U.S. for 13 years. So at this point in my life, I've still lived in Bangladesh more than I've lived in the United States. So that has been a really interesting. I do feel that I grew up, you know, as when you grow up in a different country, you grow up pretty homogenous. So the idea that I could be anything other than Bangladeshi wasn't something that I'm Bangladeshi. I live in Bangladesh. That's 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 just who I am. So suddenly becoming an other after moving here and then just realizing how much of the values that I grew up with are ingrained in me. So that was fairly interesting. And the other piece of too, even growing up in Bangladesh, I feel like I kind of had like an othering experience in a different way. So I grew up Hindu in a majority Muslim dominated country. So that was in a small group, there's a small percentage of us who are Hindu. So just kind of like our, I, I know in a way, I would always say that I had two sets of celebrations growing up. So I celebrated with like my Muslim friends, I fasted during Ramadan, and then they joined me for all of the Hindu celebrations. So religion paid, even though I'm not religion, it, I think it just played a big part of like I, how I understood the world. And that just kind of did a 360 since I came here, because once I moved to the U.S., my race really shaped who I was and not necessarily my religion. Of course, I miss the traditions and miss the food and all of that stuff. But I feel like there has never been a point in my life, whether growing up in Bangladesh or here where I've not been part of some sort of a minoritized identity. And I've been, I've been thinking about that a while especially in the last year or so. Thanks so much for sharing all of this, Perdita and Jamie and Aaron. I can't wait to hear from you. But yeah, Jamie, when you were speaking, I felt like what I grew up with was sort of very similar. And what's interesting is I think generationally, so it's interesting because my parents came from like China and then Taiwan to the U.S. actually through Cornell, which is amazing because I think, gosh, you know, I was born American because of Cornell, which is just amazing to think about. Now I work there, which is amazing. But also just that they came in the early 60s and they graduated from the business school with MBAs. And we ended up moving to central New Jersey in a predominantly white town and county. And so I have to say, like, because it was like the early 70s that I was growing up in, the challenges that we encountered as the other, like an other kind of family was just really confusing, actually, because I think what ended up happening was my oldest brother really ran into issues just in kindergarten. I mean, my parents could immediately tell his behavior was, was very different when he went to school and would come home. And so my parents, I think, in order to protect us, 
they really tried to just sort of encourage us to explore the space and just be American. And to the point that I think what ended up happening, unfortunately, is my middle brother and I do not speak Mandarin. We grew up very much, I think, just trying to navigate, like ignoring the Chinese aspect of our identities to survive in the town that we were in and in the educational system. Because for my parents, the education was everything. And they were like, as long as you succeed academically, you'll be fine. But I think that that was just an interesting time in the early 70s and 80s, trying to grow up and make sense of it because it just really kind of, I never felt like, you know, obviously I did not grow up white and I was in a predominantly white neighborhood. And it wasn't until I think I got to college and then to grad school that I was like, this is what diversity looks like. And my entire educational experience was so different. But as a grown up, like as an adult, there was just a lot of sort of confusion. Like, do I want to, can I celebrate anything from my background? You know, and I just didn't even know. I just literally over the weekend asked my mom about Qingming. <laughs> you know, like, I was like, do, do we celebrate this? What, what's going, you know, um, because I attended the event that Cornell, you know, that we did a couple of weeks ago talking about it. And so it's just been an interesting process to try to figure out, no, actually it's not a part of my identity that I should ignore or say I'm American. So that means the Chinese part of me is gone. So I think as an adult, I've really tried to learn more and become a little bit more aware and, I don't know, engage a little bit more <laughs> in my, my actual Chinese identity. Yeah. Aaron, how has Hero Heritage shaped you? Ooh. All right, how much time, how much time we have? <laughs> um, yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, wow, all, all of that resonates so much um, for me. Let me let me give the context. I just watched Minari uh, last night, and this little boy uh, who grew up in Arkansas. I'm like, oh my goodness, that is me, minus the Asian family around me because I was adopted. But these scenes of the tractor, the church, the like, all of this growing up, that resonated. And and so thinking about what what was mentioned, um, Caroline, you mentioned about some of the, and Jamie too, the growing up in mostly white area population, um, the assimilation was very strong. And yes, any children growing up, you have to adapt to people around you, but this is different. This is, you fit into every everything for a different reason than just the peer norms. And that was that, and now I, I remember the first time. I always, I always identified as Asian, but that was externally. Of course I'm Asian because that's what people see. But it wasn't until even after college, because even in my undergrad in Arkansas, I remember there were about four other Asian men who we all got confused with each other. People would call us by the other folks' names. And this happened over and over again. And it wasn't until grad school that I identified as Asian American. And so this was something that I, from the inside was owning, right? And it wasn't until then that I remember walking in New York City, a moment where I was like, wow, I'm just an individual person. That was a powerful moment. I wasn't the Asian dude in the room. 
I wasn't the Asian who gets confused with everyone else. I mean, you might get confused in New York City, but you are an individual. And that was powerful. I, I don't know how to even describe that. But then also thinking about these spaces like Cornell, these sort of spaces, then, then it starts to intersect a lot with class for me. And sometimes I feel class as strongly, if not more than race, because people use the term liminal space for adoptees. I feel like being in these elite spaces, I'm removed from my home and my roots in Arkansas and that working class, but that space looks nothing like me. And if I just go back there, unless I knew the people, I'm not connected to that in the same way that I used to feel like it. So again, I feel like I'm just swimming a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because everything that, like there are bits and pieces that each of you shared that resonate with me as well. So I moved to the States when I was about nine, oldest of three siblings with my parents. And slightly different from, you know, one of the, the things that kind of really impacted me was that none of us could speak English, right? Including my parents. As the oldest child, as I learned, there was a lot of things that I had to teach my parents because they weren't in school so they weren't integrated in the culture to be able to pick up on that kind of stuff and so same with jamie and carolyn and aaron like maybe this is i don't know if it's a trend or something but i also moved from india to vermont right where i was one of the only my brother and my sister and myself there was just the three of us as the only minorities in the entire school system and so again a lot of things that you said resonated with me and i distinctly remember this one thing that when i learned one is because of the time of the year when we moved here and because we couldn't speak English, I started a grade lower than I should have for my age. And so I graduated pretty much as the oldest person in my class because I was 19 and a half when I graduated high school. And so that has always, like for me, it's been that. And so I finished college in three years because I had to catch up to everybody else, right? So that was one thing that stuck with me. But two, the other thing is like, I, I distinctly remember when I was in the third grade, second and third grade, and when I was writing to learn in cursive, or learning to write in cursive, I taught my mom how to sign her name because she couldn't sign her name. Every time she signed my report card, she would like print, block print her letters, like her initials, and that's how she would sign our report cards. And so that's the one thing that to this day, my mother's signature looks like what I taught her in third grade. Like my signature has evolved since then, right? Because of how much writing I've done, but my mom has it. And so to this day, she still has her, her signature exactly the same as what I taught her to do in the third grade. So I would come home and we would practice her letters and she that's how she's able to sign her name in cursive. So and so I'm so excited to like hear all of you talk about kind of some of your family and, and you know, as, as you migrated to this country and what's happened. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the traditions that are important to you, traditions that you celebrate, whether they're traditionally from your heritage or not, like just some personal traditions? Jamie, do you want to start this time? Start yeah, I can start off again here. Um, yeah, so I think like the traditions that pop up in my mind always revolves around food, I think. That's how growing up my parents really connected me to my Chinese American identity. Cause otherwise like I don't speak the language. I grew up like my parents grew up bilingual in New York city in Brooklyn. They have sort of, I guess like the neighborhoods in Brooklyn on eighth Avenue. Um, that is the Chinese community down there. So they kind of grew up in that space and then they moved upstate. So I kind of grew up upstate was not, you know, really as I before really isolated and sort of my identity 
and my parents didn't teach me the language. I guess that's, you know, that conversation we've been having about like assimilation just to like fit in. So I didn't speak the language. I did sort of learn Mandarin when I was in college, but otherwise, like I would say growing up, a lot of my traditions involved around food, Mm -hmm. how that was really integrated in different holidays. Like I, one tradition for me that always sticks out in my mind is Christmas morning for like breakfast. We have dim sum which that is like our tradition. Like, you know, they were not religious. We kind of celebrate Christmas based on like present giving, which I think was very Americanized and a way of my parents allowing my siblings and I to have like that American childhood, I guess. So yeah, but still really food wise, like at the dim sum breakfast, brunch during Christmas, Thanksgiving, we celebrated that what you have all your traditional Thanksgiving food. But there was also the Chinese like lo mein <laughs> there too. Uh, so just sort of like very food wise that I guess really bonded like my family together and me to understand and have a piece of, I guess, like my Chinese heritage through food, whether it was like visiting my grandparents in Brooklyn and having my grandma's like home cooked food and like food that she taught my mom how to cook. So yeah, so even I guess some other traditions with food is like, you know, every other day besides like pizza and spaghetti night. So had like your Chinese cuisine dishes and those evenings. So yeah, very food related. Now I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say that's, that is making me hungry. And I super resonated with that. Jamie, because everything kind of like in the Das Humphrey household just revolves around food. A little background. So when I moved, I have an older sister who lives in Chicago. She is 14 years older than me. And she came to the U.S. when she was in college. So she's been in the U.S. for a while. And it's actually through her that we all immigrated. And it took a while. So it just so happened by the time I became an international student to go to college is when my parents' immigration came through. So they moved to Chicago the same year. I moved to Connecticut for school. So it just happened at the same time. And the one thing like through the many ups and downs that kind of kept us together was food. Now being in Chicago, they have a lot more access to traditional Bengali ingredients than I do up here in upstate New York in the middle of nowhere sometimes. But that also means that pre-COVID, whenever I used to visit Chicago, the TSA officer at O'Hare Airport always had like a fun surprise because my suitcase would be packed with chili powder and homemade garam masala and cumin. And my pantry here still like smells of that. So that's for me is home. And some of the traditions, like my husband and I are really good about like celebrating, even if it's just the two of us, taking some moments to celebrate some of the traditional holidays, like FaceTiming my parents and my sister and her family and some of them are Bengali New Year, which is our Bangladeshi New Year, which is April 14th every year. Durga Puja, which is this big Hindu festival that happens around October, September, depending on the lunar calendar. And as I said, growing up, I still celebrate Eid. Like I still fast when I can. Like it's just something that is kind of a way that I understood my friends and their culture having been like one of the two Hindu students like I really kind of like assimilated into their traditions so I still kind of like carry that with me and then some of our adopted traditions here are also Thanksgiving and Christmas where you know in addition to the American cuisine we always have like making biryani or something that is from home so Christmas dinner there is a goose and then there is biryani and it's fun and I love it but yeah we, we try to like during this pandemic especially I felt that 
my husband and I tried, even if it's just the two of us, to take a moment and cook and celebrate. And the easiest way to celebrate has been through food. So I super resonated with that. It's so interesting listening to all of you and just like to think back on the kind of confusion that I felt growing up, which was my parents, I think, also tried to do the whole like, you know, like bring in sort of some Chinese traditions like Lunar New Year and moon cakes. But it was interesting because we would, you know, my dad would always bring home the moon cakes and he would like, he would just say like, this is something that we did in China. And then that was it. Like, it wasn't like, oh, this was the meaning of the message that's in the cake or like, wow, you know, because we didn't have a lot of conversations about, you know, he was actually orphaned during the Japanese invasion of China. And so that greatly influenced, I think, some of his sort of like, I didn't find out so much about my dad until he passed away, right? So it's sort of like when he passed away, I was like, what do we do? Like, how do we, how do we do this, you know, as a family? And because he was orphaned very young, he had this real intense attachment to family and family get together. So because he was orphaned, we only had our maternal, like my mom's brothers and sisters and cousins that all eventually came to the States as well. And so I remember sort of a lot of my dad just driving us to Maryland, to Rhode Island, to everywhere where my cousins and aunts and uncles were, because he really, really, really wanted us to spend time with our families and to be with the family. But it was never really talked about in the context of like, we are a Chinese family, <laughs> you know, like, and this is what this means. And so it was just, I just loved that conversation about like Thanksgiving, right? Which is actually my favorite holiday because of the food. But also when I think about like my uncle, you know, before the pandemic had everybody over to his house and his wife is Jewish. All, I think most of my cousins, myself included, are married interracially. And so that's something that I think over the last couple of decades, there's like this sort of mishmash of like some culturally relevant celebrations. And then somewhere it's like, I have no idea. Like we have one of those plants that only blooms once a year and at night. And like, we have that plant, actually, we have a bunch of cuttings from it, like from the original, like when my grandparents like fled China with my mom and her family and they saved this cutting. And now all of us in the family have like cuttings from that plant. And it's so funny. Cause I'm like, I totally try to get it to bloom. And I have no idea why, like, I just need to like you know, really kind of that. So it's important to me because I grew up with that. But as I learn more about our family's history and about Chinese history specifically, it is becoming more meaningful because I think as I get older or, you know, as I sort of grow more comfortable with my identities, the meaning is definitely something that we've been trying to really kind of embed in our lives. Like my wife is super, you know, she's Caucasian. And she actually grew up right around Cornell, which is why we came back here. And, you know, it's interesting because every Christmas day, our thing is we make dumplings like all day long. And it wasn't anything that my family did like normally, you know, or regularly. It's just something that we were like, no, this is our special Christmas tradition. This is what we're going to do. And now it's funny because her family in this area also like just comes over to our house and we do this big giant like dumpling making project. And it's just, 
it's a great way to share it with her family as well. Yeah, I, I feel like we could do an entire session just on food. So let me jump in briefly on that. Yeah, hungry as well. Um, I mean, a lot of what I grew up with in the South was, I mean, thinking of traditions and stuff, it, it was a Christmas, uh, Easter service, like those sort of presents, all of that cultural sort of piece. And I remember just thinking about the food piece whenever I was adopted. I think that my family had taken me to a Korean place and like, oh, you know, want you to have, you know, try this not too long after I had been over here. And then maybe they did it at a future point and I just wasn't about it. That I couldn't eat the hot stuff like, like I used to, could, things like that. So maybe my taste buds adjusted a bit. But I remember the next time that I had Korean food, I believe it was in, again, in grad school when I was in New York City. And I didn't know, no, it was actually in high school. And I visited there and I didn't know what to do with it because I was used to just Chinese buffets and here's all the food It tastes, you know, it goes to the palate of like Americanized palate. Uh, but here's like, here's all these little dishes and I'm like, where's all my food at? And then, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I need a, an abundance. Like that, that's my dietary restriction is a small amount. Like I want a lot of food, but then later on, whenever I did go back and, and I met some folks in the city who, and we went to a Korean spot in, in K-Town and actually showed me, oh, this, that's banchan where you can, you eat this stuff in the beginning and then it can go along with your main meal and all of that. But I didn't even know. So just being like introduced to something that would have been part of my culture and like eating some of the kimchi is like, I don't know this, but it's familiar. Mm -hmm. And just enjoying that time together over, over this meal. And then um, actually in California, having some friends, I re remember this distinctly, they came over and they brought their portable grills into our apartment. And we actually did Korean barbecue in the apartment. And that was such a moment because it was kind of like, hey, let's do some burgers on the grill outside that I'm used to. A, just a different version of this like it's just hey come over let's have some food but that was amazing we aren't going out to some Korean barbecue restaurant so that was interesting on one side but then I remember here at Cornell went to eat in a dining hall and on the menu it had Arkansas chocolate gravy and biscuits on the menu and I actually remember having this growing up and I don't know if y'all are familiar with this or if that just sounds really weird to you and so I, I got the chef. I was like, hey, I didn't know if this was like a regional thing or a state thing. It's like, that's cool. Where did you get this recipe, et cetera? But he, he asked me like, what did you think? But it was such a weird thing that I was, me as Asian American here was representing for the taste of Arkansas, even though I grew up there, but it was just a weird kind of switch of roles. So a lot of those types of stories resonate. Yeah. yeah, for me, food is big too. I just remember that like growing up where I grew up, like I said, I grew up in Vermont and to this day, I say some of my best friends are still from there, right? But it is an, a predominantly white area where I grew up. And I distinctly remember telling my mom that I wasn't going to take Indian food to school because like whether it was the smell or the look of it or whatever it was, like I didn't want anybody to say anything about it, right? 
And it's so funny because it's like, I, I remember that. And then my kids, they're 12 years old. And so they're at that age where their friends' opinions matter quite a bit, you know? My son could care less about anybody's opinion, right? And I'm so proud of that. Like, of, like I'm proud of myself as a mom. Like, I'm proud of him as a kid. Like, he brings Indian food to school every day. And as long as it's his favorite food, he does not care to the point where he's just like, this is so yummy. And all the teachers have told me that they actually go to see what he brought for lunch. And then I remember in kindergarten, I had a parent come up to me and said, whatever your son brings to school for lunch is what my daughter wants to eat because your son raves about his food so much that my daughter, that's the only thing she wants. And I was like, I don't, I, I don't think she can handle the spiciness, like, cause it's spicy food, right? And and she was just like, I don't care. Like my daughter doesn't want to bring you like anything else that I would bring like that would pack for her. She wants what your son is eating because of how much your son raves about the food that he brings to school. So again, it's just a, it's a, like a proud moment for me that I am so glad that it's completely the opposite of how I reacted when I was in school compared to my son. My daughter's still a little iffy about what she'll bring, but I think it's just because she's picky about her food. But my son just is, as long as he loves it, he does not care for anybody's opinion. And I love it. I love every second of it. So let me just move on to our next question. And so what does it mean for you to have the celebratory month in terms of just celebrating all of our heritages, all the different heritages that make up AAPI? For me, I've spent most of my time in the United States, kind of defending that I am Asian, that it's you have to be part of the celebration. I think this is the first time in my 13 years in the United States that I'm part of something that's celebrating the AAPI heritage. And I think for me, that's, I was just like realizing that like when, you know, I've, I've attended spaces like this, but I don't think I've ever felt celebrated to the way I'm feeling right now. Um, like, you know, when you see me, I think I appear as someone who is, let's say, traditionally from India, right? So when I when I first moved here from Bangladesh, a lot of it was like, oh, you're Indian. And I was very specific about correcting folks, even though it was uncomfortable, because Bangladesh has such a rich history. My parents lived through the liberation war. Like, it's so recent. Like, we are a fairly new country. And to be called by our country's name was such a big deal. So I spent like so much time telling people like I am Bangladeshi, not Indian. Like we're neighbors and I have nothing against like, it's great, let's celebrate. Uh, but I would like for you to acknowledge that I'm Bangladeshi. And I think the reason why I had to, because every time I would say I am Bangladeshi, nine times out of 10, someone would say, oh, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. And then there was that big conversation about, no, it's not the same thing. And then it became like this, another aspect of it was this idea of being Asian. For the longest time, this has disappeared on most forms now, but for the longest time in the demographic box on any form, there was the Asian check mark, and then there was the Indian subcontinent check box. And if I would check both, I would get that pushback of, you can only choose one. And I'm like, but I'm both. I'm from that subcontinent area because Bangladesh would be spelled out in like what Indian subcontinent meant. And I'm Asian. Like if you pull up a map, it's in Asia. So that was like such a big part of like just me assimilating here into the U.S. is sometimes felt like I was giving folks mixed signals. But then I also don't, I don't think I'm responsible for that because I, I get to celebrate my heritage any way I want to. And I say that because in school, like, you know, I was a big participant of Club India. And I was in the South Asian Council 
and there wasn't a Bangladeshi club. So I tried to open a Bangladeshi club and all of that stuff. So I did everything. And all I kind of like just wanted was this acknowledgement that we are not monolithic as a culture. And I just, and as an individual, I am just not one thing. I'm multiple things and I can be celebrated for everything I'm bringing to the table. So I think just to have this recognition, which I honestly didn't get before coming to Cornell, I'll be really honest. Like I stepped into Cornell and there's an Asian Asian American center and there are people who look like me and then there are students who come to me and say, you don't know what it means for me to see someone in your role who looks like me. So having that moment here and then kind of it all coming into like this one space of, yes, we are not just about this month and it feels great to, I feel seen. I think that's the way I can put it. Don't know how to add on to that, <laughs> but I would say like definitely like for me to hear about Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, it is definitely about celebration. It is like, you know, I wish it, it was, as you mentioned, like it's not just like one month. I wish, you know, as a human being, I'm Asian all the time and love to celebrate that every single 365 days of the year, but definitely like to have a month and to actually like see it and to have people putting events and creating spaces for us to have like these dialogues, it's wonderful and empowering and beautiful. And for me, like that word celebration is how I kind of see like this month and to be able to share with others my identity and part of who I am. I would say it's specifically in different spaces because I feel like specifically AAPI, like Heritage Month, I did not know it even existed growing up until I got into higher education. And that is where, you know, my club organizations were putting on events. We saw it like highlighted in like the event school, like newsletters and whatnot. And then the same here in Cornell. Um, So I'm kind of just seeing a pattern. Like it just seems to be like in these higher education spaces. I would say like now with social media, like being a huge thing, you know, I was recently scrolling on May 1st, several days ago on Instagram and just seeing it like really pop up and people sharing it in their stories whether it was just like influencers I follow or different AAPI channels and just seeing them like post like stories, news articles, infographics, just to like celebrate. Yeah. So I feel for me growing up as like a nineties, early 2000s child, it wasn't really a thing until I got into higher education spaces. And then now with social media, seeing it more prominently around. So that makes me, I guess, like definitely proud of my Chinese American background and just to kind of celebrate it despite like all the hardships that we experience personally for me, like growing up and experiencing like racism and, you know, sifting through that racism and that trauma that comes with it. But then at the same time, just like celebrating who I am as an individual and, you know, my heritage of my grandparents, like coming here to the United States in raising like my parents and then my parents raising my siblings. So yeah, just beautiful. I also, I love the celebratory aspect of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month because what doesn't get taught or acknowledged in a lot of like history classes or when we're growing up, or at least when I was growing up, you know, in like the eighties and nineties and in school, like there was not really anything about Asian history at all, and especially Asian history in the U.S. So I think like there's the celebratory aspect, and then there's also that sort of, for myself, and I think 
just really wanting to engage in that space of like, why is this the way it is? Or what came before me? Like when I think about my parents and all of the people that came before me that really, you know, fought for even like, can't say like, oh, it wasn't like, you know, my parents were activists, but they definitely, I think they went along with like, how do you have your kids survive in this culture, right? Um, Because we know they're going to have a better life for it. And at the same time, there's all these sacrifices and then the trauma of the racism. Like I grew up super confused because both of my parents graduated from Cornell, which I knew was like, that's a big deal. Oh my gosh, it's this Ivy League. And it was Cornell was very huge in our family. And as the pinnacle of like where you should go for college and education, yet because they had such thick accents, I watched people treat my parents as if they were dumb, like as as if they were stupid or they, people would get just like really impatient with my parents. And it was interesting because growing up as a child, it was very confusing and I was a little embarrassed by it and like, kind of like, oh no, I can't separate myself from this and, and making sure that when I was hearing like English and, and speaking that I became very aware of my diction and, and how I write. So with Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, I think some of that, like for myself in the past couple of years, it's really been about like trying to learn about the history of kind of like every time I think, God, something ha- when something happens to me, like even like moving here from, from Seattle, I moved here three years ago. It was like a completely different experience. And you know, it's just interesting because every time I think, God, that really stunk that 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 person just said that to me at my the grocery, the local grocery store, or whatever. And then I think back to the history, and I'm like, that was nothing compared to like the systematic, like elimination of Asians being able to even come into the U.S. or just no justice for Vincent Chin being killed because of the reaction to the Japanese car success in the 80s. So I think it's good both for celebration and also that reflection and reminder that as hard as I might think I have it in the moment, I really honor the people who unfortunately suffered so much before and didn't have the opportunities that I've had. So I've been very fortunate to also be able to say like, gosh, you know, I have been given a lot of opportunities to shine in ways that I think in previous generations just wasn't exactly the case but and I do have to say I know I'm not trying to be like yeah Cornell but yeah Cornell because I think Cornell has historically been so like the whole reason my parents could even come to the U.S. was through graduate school because Cornell opened its doors to international students in ways that just changed the entire trajectory of my entire family. So organizations like Cornell and environments like Cornell that really say, no, this is difference in thought is really valued is something that I I have just really come to appreciate. Well, I want to thank all of you for sharing your amazing stories with me today as part one of our session. And we will be continuing for our listeners to know that we will be continuing this discussion in part two that will be released next week. That's it for part one of our four-part special series. For the latest updates on diversity, equity, and inclusion at Cornell, as well as resources to honor and celebrate Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. 
My name is Toro Patel. My name is Anthony Sis. Thank you for listening to AAPI at Cornell.